Welcome to the Hanover Valley Podcast, a ministry of Hanover Valley Presbyterian Church. We are located at 133 Carlisle Street in downtown Hanover, Pennsylvania. Check out the rest of our website at hanovervalley.org. Thank you for listening. John chapter 1, starting in verse 14. The uh, text is on page 10 in your bulletin, I believe, if you'd like to read there, or you can scroll or use your own Bible. I'll be reading from the New American Standard Version this morning. Uh, So let's turn our attention to God's Word together. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we saw His glory Glory as of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. John testified about him and cried out, saying, This was he of whom I said, He who comes after me has a higher rank than I, for he existed before me. For of his fullness we have all received, and grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses, Grace and truth were realized through Jesus Christ. No one has seen God at any time. The only begotten God who is in the bosom of the Father, he has explained him. This is the word of God. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. That is a light to our path and a lamp to our feet. Lord, that it shows us you this morning. Lord, we pray that you would transform us through it. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, again, season's greetings. Merry Christmas. We are coming off of that busy week of Christmas filled with family and friends um, and presents. It occurred to me this week as I was preparing for for the sermon that we seem to start anticipating and preparing for Christmas earlier and earlier and earlier every year. I think this year I started seeing Christmas advertisements uh, at the end of September. (laughs) And uh, and there's all sorts of reasons for that. Uh, One of them is the nostalgia that that Christmas stirs up in our hearts. And so we're excited for that time with family. We're excited for the traditions, for the good food. Uh, Sometimes we're just excited for, for presents, you know, what we can give to other people, what we can receive from other people. Um, Hopefully, for Christians, we're excited to celebrate and remember the incarnation of Christ, God becoming man in order to die for the sins of the world. And some of that anticipation, uh, at least in our culture, is driven by capitalism. (laughs) We want to, to make money on this fourth quarter. And so for whatever reason we begin anticipating Christmas. It is an unavoidable uh, part of our lives, part of our culture. It's constantly with us. In fact, it's, it fills up almost a quarter of our collective imagination each year. For three months out of the year, we're, we're looking ahead to this time. And so we're excited. We're building up to it. We start uh, buying gifts. We, we pick out the perfect thing for everybody in our lives. We're so excited to share that with them. We're excited to prepare services here at the church to share with all of you. Uh, we're excited to, to have a, a nice environment set up so that we can preach the gospel and revel in, in the grace of God together. And this excitement builds over these three months, right? In September, we're not super in the Christmassy mood, but as soon as December hits, 
We could break out the advent calendar. We start breaking into the candy day after day after day. And suddenly Christmas Eve is here. And we're excited. And we share the time with uh, friends and family. We read the night before Christmas. We go to bed. We wake up the next morning and we unwrap the presents. And there's so much joy. You know, this, this year was my daughter's first Christmas. And so my wife and I had a lot of fun you know, unwrapping presents with her and seeing the joy in her face as she's playing with her different toys. And we gave her some wrapping paper. Well, I should say I gave her some wrapping paper. And she started crinkling it and instantly put it in her mouth. And we had to fish out the paper out of her mouth that broke off. <laughs> uh, joyful morning, cinnamon buns, love it. And then by about 2 o'clock in the afternoon, I think some of you will probably resonate with this, there's something that I, I call the Christmas slump happens. All the anticipation has come and gone. The presents have been opened. The time has been spent. And suddenly, we feel this sense of dissatisfaction. Feel this sense of, oh, well, <laughs> is that all there is? And there's all reasons, all sorts of reasons for that. Maybe there was dysfunction in our families this Christmas. Maybe there's sorrow we felt because of not being able to be with family. Maybe there's someone we, we lost recently. Maybe we, we didn't hope, we didn't uh, see Christmas go the way we hoped it would. And so we feel this sense of dissatisfaction at a time where we should be feeling hopeful and joyful and excited. And as Christians, we feel that joy and we feel that hope about not presents, not the holiday, not the nostalgia, but the fact that God is with us. For us, a child was born to take away our sins and that reality is not 2,000 years old, but that reality is here and now. It's present with us. Because Christ died and he rose and now he lives forevermore. And he's here for us today. You know, we still face this, this sense of missing something. And we feel that daily. Our culture feels that daily. And in part, we feel this dissatisfaction because we put our hope in things other than Christ. We put our hope in uh, perfect family dynamics. We put our hope in uh, possessions. We put our hope in uh, security in all sorts of different ways. And God uses this dissatisfaction that is often sinful because we really ought to be resting fully in Christ, but we can't and we don't. But God uses that sense of dissatisfaction to guide us back to himself. He uses the dissatisfaction we feel to, to, to prick a desire for satisfaction and satisfaction that's only found in Jesus Christ. And as we go to Jesus, he satisfies our deepest needs and he gives us the things that we are so desperately searching for. And so how does Christ do that? Well, the first way he does that, verse 14, he does that by revealing God to us. And because Christ reveals God to us, we can enjoy and enter into relationship with him. Verse 14, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we saw his glory. Glory is the one, the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. John uses this 
phrase, the word. He also uses it in John 1, 1, which many of us are familiar with. In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. And here John is making a very specific point to use this title, the word, for Jesus Christ. He's not saying a word from God, but the word. And the word is God. And he uses this title for Christ not only to speak of Christ's divinity, but to show us part of Christ's activity, how he's working in this world and what he came to do. And one of the things he came to do was to reveal God to us. Because what does the word do as we think of the word in terms of scripture or just words in general? Words reveal. They reveal intentions. They reveal and explain thoughts. As we look at verse 18... We see this even more clearly. No one has seen God at any time. The only begotten God who is in the bosom of the Father, he has explained him. So we see that Jesus coming in flesh is in part to reveal God to us, to explain God to us. This is helpful for us because oftentimes when we think of God, we don't think of him as being personal. We don't think of him as being close to us. We think of him as being transcendent and infinite and eternal and all-powerful, which means he's out there. He's not here. But Scripture shows us that he is here, that he knows us so intimately, so closely. We think of God in terms of Exodus 19, descending on Mount Sinai in fire and smoke, and everything trembles, and the Israelites aren't even allowed to touch the mountain. And only Moses can go up. And even when Moses goes up, he doesn't get a full picture of God, does he? He can just see God's back. And even as we look at Isaiah 6, when Isaiah is in the throne room of God and he beholds him on his throne, what does he do? He immediately face plants. And he says, woe is me. I'm a man of unclean lips from a people of unclean lips. And in that throne room setting, there's still transcendence, and glory and power, and there's still that sense of an a, um, unbridgeable divide between us and God. And that sense of separation is our own doing. We think of God that way. Not once in Scripture does he present himself as being far from his people. Because as we look at the, the Israelites wandering in the wilderness... Where does God reside? He resides in the tabernacle in the center of the camp. He dwells with his people. He's with them. And so as we look at John 1 here, in verse 14, he then says, The word became flesh and did what? Dwelt among us. Which could also be translated as he tabernacled among us. He pitched his tent. He put his camp right in the middle of us, his people. He came to earth. He didn't come in flesh as a baby and and reside in a palace or a castle really far away from us, but in a small village where he was raised, where he worked, where he cried, where he he, um, played with his brothers and sisters, where he was with his, his family and his friends. And in his infleshing, in his 
incarnation, Jesus reveals God's character to us. Next part of verse 14. We saw his glory. Glory is of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. We use the term glory a lot. We hear it a lot in hymns. We hear it a lot in, in church. And we talk about how we want to bring glory to God. And as we think of God possessing glory, that being a characteristic that is true of God, what is that? What is glory? Well, to say that God is glorious is to say uh, that who he is is perfect, and who he is are his characteristics, his character. God is perfection. God is perfect goodness. God is perfect justice. God is perfect holiness. God is perfect on down the line. And these things that God is, his justice, his goodness, these aren't things that are added on top of God, but they are who God is. They are part of God himself. And so when we talk about God's glory, and then Jesus reflects God's glory, we're saying that Jesus is reflecting the character of God, but not in the way that we do. Because we reflect the character of God as the, the moon reflects the light of the sun. But Jesus is the sun. <laughs> Jesus is God himself, and so he reveals God's character to us as God himself, but also as a man. And so we see God not as a spirit, as scriptures tells us God is, but as a man, as somebody who we can touch, as somebody who lived, who slept, who ate. And in Christ's ministry throughout the Gospels, we see God's justice for the poor and the downtrodden. We see his, his care for those who are sick. We see his mercy for sinners. We see his justice and his holiness against sin. And we see it played out in such a way that makes God more tangible to you and I. God condescends in Christ to reveal himself even more clearly to us than he had before. And this is his grace to us. But not only does he reveal God's character, but he reveals God's will for our salvation. He reveals that God desires to save sinners. And he desires to save sinners through the death of his son, Jesus Christ. Jesus came to die for us, to live the perfect life we couldn't live, to take the death that we deserve, in order to give us grace that we don't deserve. Jesus has the authority to do this because he is God himself. In verse 15, John says this, John testified about him and cried out, saying, This was he of whom I said, He who comes after me has a higher rank than I, for he existed before me. If you've been uh, reading along in the Advent um, section of Scripture in the uh, beginning of Matthew or the beginning of Luke, or have been listening as we've read Advent sections in our services, You'll notice that after the angel comes to Mary and tells her that, that she is going to be with child, that she is going to give birth to the Son of God, um, she goes to Elizabeth. And when she goes to Elizabeth, Scripture tells us that uh, she is already six months pregnant with none other than John the Baptist. 
who is being spoken of here in verse 15. And so, therefore, John was conceived and was born prior to Christ. And if that's true, why is John saying, he is greater than me because he existed before me? He's saying that because Christ is the pre-existent one. He's the one who has existed for all of eternity, who has no beginning and no end. And the only person that could have no beginning and no end is God himself. And so John, one of the major themes of the gospel of John is, is establishing the divinity of Jesus Christ, saying he is who he says he was. He is the only one who could live and die in order to take away the sins of the world. And so he establishes Christ's authority, then he um, provides how Jesus is able to give us salvation. He has the ability to reveal God's salvation to us because he became man. Because he died the death that we deserved. And because of this, this morning, friends, uh, you and I can receive grace. We can receive the grace of Christ by despairing of ourselves, acknowledging our sin uh, before God, and receiving that which he freely gives to us. And as we think about Christmas, it's not just about the baby in the manger, but it's about the man on the cross. It's about the one who died for us, and that's what the incarnation points us ahead to. As we remember uh, all of Christ's work, it then points us ahead to the time when he's coming again. He's going to return. He's going to make all things new. He's going to make all things right for us. And this morning, he freely gives you his grace. And we see this in verse uh, 16 and 17. For of his fullness, that is his divinity, he's not making a, a, a snarky comment about Christ's ego or his weights or anything like that, but he's saying of his, his fullness, his fullness of divinity, his, his godness, we have all received in grace upon grace. And this isn't just a statement that we've received grace or a lot of grace, but he's saying that we've received grace on top of grace, that he has given us grace before and now more grace is being heaped on top. Verse 17 explains that more. So we see four, which I often tell the youth kids, what's the, what's the four there for? This is explaining verse 16 in more detail. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth were realized through Jesus Christ. And John is not making a, a dichotomy between the law and grace. He's not putting them at odds, but he's showing us how the law that was given through Moses was a first instance or a prior instance of God's grace to us. Because as we look at the law, the law what the law does is it reveals God's character to us in the same way that Jesus reveals God's character. It shows us this is who God is. This is how God has designed the world to function. This is how he has designed you to live. This is what is right and good and lovely and beautiful. But what the law also does is it condemns us. Condemns us. I was meeting with uh, Jeff Catone, the pastor at Redeemer Church in Chambersburg, or one of our sister churches. Went and saw him a couple weeks ago. 
And on my way back, I was driving into Gettysburg right before the battlefield. And I'm going pretty slow. It was just a red light, lots of traffic. So I'm like, you know, not speeding. And behind me, I see red and blue lights. And I'm just like, what the heck? I haven't been pulled over since college, which I was very deservedly pulled over for um, at that time. And, but instantly, as soon as I see those lights, my heart rate starts to rise. My blood pressure starts to rise. I get this sense of, oh, no, did I actually, you know, murder somebody and I didn't realize I did? You know, just these crazy thoughts that go through your head where you start panicking a little bit because the law is on its way. And, you know, my registration just needed to be renewed. And, but it strikes me that we all have this kind of relationship with the law, whether it be human law or divine law, where it makes us a little nervous, makes us uncomfortable. And, and we don't always view it as the good thing that it is that God has provided to us. But there's also a sense where it's good that we approach the law with that sense of uncomfortableness, because God designed the law to make us uncomfortable. God designed the law to show us that we're sinners and that we're in need of a Savior, that we can't save ourselves. Because even as you look at the Ten Commandments, you might rattle down that list and be like, well, you know, I've never cheated on my spouse. I've never uh, stolen. I've never um, murdered anybody. Uh, you know, maybe I've told a white lie or two. But, you know, sometimes we go down that list and we're like, oh, we're pretty good. But as you go to Matthew 5 in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus kind of blows that up. And he says, if you've hated your brother, you're guilty of murder. If you looked at another person with lust, you're guilty of adultery. And so who can stand? No one. For all have fallen short of the glory of God. And so God uses his law to point us to the Redeemer. Even as we look a little bit more ahead to uh, the sacrificial system in the Old Testament. Oftentimes we're looking at it and we're like, well, what the heck's that there for? We don't do that now. Why were they doing that then? Isn't that inconsistent and weird? Well, the reason that God gave the Israelites the sacrificial system was to give them something that taught them of their need for a Savior. Um, some Reformed theologians have talked about it as being a, a sacrament. That they went through this, this daily, weekly, yearly act of offering up sacrifices for their sins to, to remind them that their sins need to be paid for by blood. And to remind them that daily they're sinning and that daily they can't save themselves. Then that they need a Savior. Not only that, they need someone who can do it once and for all. It was to encourage them to put their hope in the coming Messiah who would crush the head of the serpent. He would do away with sin, death, and the devil forever. Uh, the great Princeton theologian B.B. Warfield used to talk about the Trinity in the Old Testament uh, with this illustration, which I think is also appropriate here. He talks about how the Old Testament is like uh, a really nicely decorated room. Got a nice sofa, a nice table, nice china in the china closet, nice TV, nice chairs. Um, but the lights are really low. And so you can really only just make out kind of fuzzy shapes of everything that's in the room. You can't really see it in all of its grandeur completely. So that's what the Old Testament is like. We get the shapes, we get the, the broad outline, we kind of see the parts, but it, it doesn't quite click for us yet. 
But when the word became flesh, the lights got flipped on. And in Christ, it all makes sense. And now we can look at it back in the Old Testament, we can feel like, of course, that's what the sacrificial system was meant for. It was meant to point us to Jesus, because Jesus fulfills the law for us. He comes and he destroys the power of the, the law over the Christians. Not destroyed, but fulfills. He does it for us. And as a result, we just see heaps and heaps and heaps of grace. Because God is revealing himself to us in Christ, and Christ is coming to take the penalty that we deserved. Glorious. As a result of this, we see that uh, we need grace. Grace can be defined as unmerited favor. That God looks at you and he says, I like you and I love you. Regardless of what you've done. Regardless of who you are. Regardless of your background. I like you and I love you because you're you. And I want you. We need that grace. We need that grace because we sin. My former pastor uh, used to talk about this concept a lot, that oftentimes in our lives we're not looking for forgiveness, but we're looking for vindication. We don't want to be forgiven. We want to be uh, cleared of all charges. We don't want to uh, plead guilty. We want to be told, you're right and everyone else is wrong. But what we really need is forgiveness. And forgiveness necessarily requires that we did something that needs forgiving. And oftentimes, part of our hang-up uh, in the Christian life is that we feel the intense pressure to look good without actually being good. And so what happens is we put up this facade. And we put up these, these walls between us and others, and we build this double life that isn't real, which isn't true. And all the while, what we're doing is we're deceiving ourselves. We're trying to convince ourselves that, that we're not sinners, that we don't need Jesus. And to do that is ultimately to, to reject Christ's grace. But Jesus comes on the scene and he says, you're forgiven, I love you, come to me. And therefore, we can come to him and say, I'm sinful. I need forgiveness, I need transformation, I need what only you can do for me and Jesus Christ. So friends, we've been given grace heaped on top of grace today because of the incarnation of Christ, because of his work because of what he continues to do today. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your grace, that you love us, or that you promise to transform us through uh, your spirit and your word. I pray that you would help us to live out of that reality each day, that we would not uh, rest in our sin, that we would not rest um, apart from you, but that we would rest in you, that you would give us that grace today. We rejoice in the incarnation of your Son, Lord, that you became flesh to reveal yourself to us, to save us, to bring us to yourself. 
Lord. Fill us with joy and gladness today, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.